0: Pete Liston. I'm the host of the Military Mindset for Business podcast. And if you look at the financial papers or you follow the news, uh, particularly the business news, you'll see this term that keeps popping up everywhere. ESG, ESG, ESG. Uh, I notice it over and over again, and I really want to unpack and explore deeper what this thing in business ESG is. So today I've been lucky enough to get uh, Oliver Barnes, who is the founder and managing partner of ESG plus F to really unpack, uh, what this is all about Ollie, welcome to the military mindset for business pod. Thank you, Pete. And, um, thank you for having me today. A pleasure. Hey, before we get into ESG, let's learn a little bit more about you. Tell us a little bit about your journey of how you got to be on that side of the camera and your experience in the ESG space.
1: Absolutely. Um, well, I guess, um, you know, I was born originally in the UK but um uh, my my childhood took a, a a different turn around the age of 12 my parents actually um they they fled the nest and left us kids in the UK but they they went off to Africa um into East Africa and um and I you know I followed them shortly after that and so I guess my world sort of tipped completely upside down um and my father was involved in um Uh, private-public partnerships that were building a horticultural industry in East Africa, in Kenya. Um, And we really saw, you know, firsthand growing up, a a whole bunch of, I guess, uh, environmental and social factors going on in and around those businesses in in that informative year, um, years. And I guess that that sort of subconsciously, you know, uh, and through that experience, sort of, I guess, wired me to be acutely attuned to to some of these factors, which we, you know, ultimately now come together in a in a whole industry around ESG.
0: And if there's one thing that I love traveling, it is, sorry, if there's one thing I love in life, it is traveling. Um, what was it like for a kid, sorry, a teenager, plucked out of England and ending up in Kenya? Like, what kind of were you in the city? Were you in the country? Did you get to explore much of the area?
1: Absolutely, yeah. It, it completely turned my world upside down because until that point, I had had a a pretty, um, I guess, covered in cotton wool life um, in in the south of England, um, and pretty much that was the world that I I knew, and, and it completely changed upside down. Um, both from a, a personal um, point of view of what my family were doing and how we lived as a family unit. I've got older brothers and and, and sisters that didn't come with us, and at the age of twelve, I was suddenly in the middle of um, middle of Kenya in a very rural area. Um, at, at that stage, we um, were based on a um, farm called Old Pejeta that would be, had been previously owned by an arms dealer, a Saudi arms yeah. dealer, and ended up with a, um, a British billionaire called Tiny Ryland. And the organization that my father worked for parachuted him in there as a as that's Experience with land, water, and agricultural development. I guess they were looking to repurpose the asset, and so yeah, we lived in a 130,000 acre property with its own rhino sanctuary built in there. Um, No running water, no electricity. um, Took about uh, eight to ten hours to get to the nearest town. So we we sort of lived in this quite isolated uh, isolated world. That's me. yeah, for me, I spent um that bit of my youth. You know, my holidays were spent in Africa and then I'd get put on a plane back into, you know, uh suit and blazer boarding school in the West Country in England. It was complete contrast to to the two lives. So I often joke, but I I I grew up with uh with, with no electricity, no water, but
0: I had a pet rhino <laughs> called my rhino. That's that's brilliant. Um, what a change in life, and what a basically an experience that you know really defines you know the next chapters of your life and, and who you're going to be. So, we've got this you know this British kid with a taste of Africa. Um, you mentioned back to boarding school to finish senior high school. Is that right?
1: Correct. Yeah, I did. I did. I went to Kingsburyton in Somerset all the way through to my A levels. Um, and you know trying to trying to figure out what I was going to do in life. Um, you know I chose a pathway. Purely because of that love for Africa, I I always imagined I'd end up back in Africa, um, working on very similar projects to to what I'd been um, growing up around. Um, So I went and studied agricultural business management at Imperial College, London. Um, And really, by the time I'd finished that degree, there wasn't the same opportunities for expats and and quite rightly. But, you know, there was, um, I guess, a nationalisation or a, a movement away from expats operating these businesses to something that would have been very successful was upskilling and training um, local Kenyans to be able to operate at a management level. So from a graduate point of view, yeah, career took a, a very different turn to what I'd imagined going into that degree.
0: Uh, uh, noting your history in particularly, and we'll unpack some of the uh, agriculture industry businesses that you came to in Australia, but I actually studied horticulture at uh, Hawkesbury Ad College in Australia a lifetime ago. And so this connection with what your father was doing in Africa and that love for the bush, is that what related you into this career path into studying ag?
1: Yeah, I think you get conditioned as a child, right? You know, your are upbringing and what, what sits around you. I look, I look at my father, um, that he had worked for our family business that we'd had for a hundred years in the UK that was sold when I was around the age when I was born. Um, but it was it was a horticultural business and it's sort of been a generational so technically I'm not a horticulturist I'm, I'm more focused on the business side but in that industry there's five generations of the of the, of the family yeah. that followed through that and you know interestingly my career has actually taken me away from that um and so I guess as I've experienced more things um more companies uh, more structures more capital markets more ge- geographical regions I've ended up sort of I guess moving into a direction I couldn't couldn't have envisaged as a 20 year old uh being yeah. but absolutely everything that uh I've done through those years is sort of like I lean on or compounded to to where I stand today and we're obviously still on the journey but you know that that's the route that that I took
0: it's funny we couldn't have had different career paths in you know the the rural sector because even though I studied you know horticulture I always basically did most of my career You know, labouring or small teams, So working in flower crops, I had my back bent picking flowers most of the day. But, uh, you know, agriculture is a a big business. And what led you to, you know, leaving uh, London, I believe, transiting through Dubai for a while to get into Australian agribusiness?
1: Yeah, I guess... um... Well, my route uh, was, again, very unplanned, um, but I guess I finished university, I stayed in the UK and I worked on environmental businesses. So we were yeah. closely related to the agricultural industry, but we, I got involved in companies that were very early on in recycling of what they call um, the wet organic f- fraction of waste streams. So it can be everything from your green waste all the way to the food waste. Um, and trying to divert that into, into a renewable sort of applications whether it be energy or, or just basic composting um and I guess I ended up on the tools in those businesses writing contracts with councils and I had that moment where I really felt I needed more and I was trying to expand the business for for different I didn't own the business but I was in a I ended up in a senior leadership role pretty quickly um looking at you know how do we get capital into this business how do we grow it and I had this sort of, I guess, moment where I was like, I need to be sitting on the side that writes the checks and understand this from the, the counterparty. Um, so that's I guess the, the moment where I switched from rural, agricultural, land-loving individual to I'm actually going to end up sitting behind the desk and yeah. you know, become a lot more analytical and understanding the, the the capital market side. Um so what I did and you know, I, I went and wrote and called 60 different companies in London as quickly as I could, found any sort of point of leverage and took the first opportunity I could to get up there and end up in, in working in Mayfair for um, three years um, in, the, in some businesses that had interests um, globally um, in Africa, South America, in China and Indonesia, um, but just sitting in the back office, is all being everything yeah. I possibly could. Um,
0: a long way from um, squeezing a clot of dirt in your hand sitting uh, behind the desk. Um, One of the things I'm interested in here is I remember as a kid, we used to just chuck stuff away, right? Rubbish was rubbish. Rubbish was waste. Um, Then I remember we went through a bit of a shift in the 80s where we'd recycle aluminium cans. And like I'm talking at a very low level here, but nowadays, uh, waste is not waste. Waste is resource management. And uh, the way that Society has shifted into being able to reuse, you know, valuable assets we were previously just getting rid of. You you mentioned that bit about composting, and what kind of businesses were doing that as forefront or forerunners of the industries?
1: Yeah, we 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 were sitting between an agricultural um, uh, type expertise, particularly parties that have come out of things like um, mushroom farming, because composting is an essential skill set and producing medium to grow mushrooms all the way through to then intersecting with um large corporates so waste management firms like ceter for, for example um and the approach to those businesses and the model differs you know which end of that that spectrum you look at um but just sort of dialing it back to the core economics and, and what's really fascinating about i guess um a reuse business or a waste resource business is um Very few businesses actually pay for your ingredients. Mm. In the waste industry quite often, and particularly in those days around this, this, we'd get a gate fee. So every time a lorry turned up and dropped off um, green waste or food waste, um, we we, we monetized that. And then we processed that into compost and we got a chance to, to resell it at the back end. So it was a phenomenal business with some great margins, particularly in the early days. The challenges with that business and this, this, um, you know, we we certainly, uh, I guess, as pioneers or, or um, first movers bought the brunt of this, this, legislation hadn't caught up with the business. They didn't know how to license and permit these types of businesses, whether it was an agricultural operation or, or whether it was a waste management service, very different types of regulations would apply. And that business there actually ended up faltering and ending, ended up getting sold, Purely because, not because the economics or the demand was there, but um, regulation got in the way, and we we couldn't get planning permission without a waste management permit, but you couldn't get waste management permit without planning permission,
0: mm. and it completely
1: stalled the business. Um, so the business ended up um, spending huge amounts of um, money trying to pioneer through and, and find a pathway to be able to scale the business beyond the the original site, and and ultimately, yeah. It, it it did the hard yards, and I, I actually believe I, I was catching. I caught up with a friend that that works in um, government lobbying and and regulation, and I understand that business is now used as a case study for, you know, regulatory burden gone gone crazy. So um, everything's yeah, about so, timing. Exciting but very frustrating trying to be a, a pioneer. Um, so,
0: so what led you to Australia? How did you end up so, over
1: here? Uh, I, yeah, I went to London, and and that afforded me the opportunity to end up. Um, running an office for private individuals based in Dubai. And I ended up um, in Dubai in 2008. And, you know, we could sort of see uh, GFC was coming. Um, The individuals decided that they were going to relocate. Dubai was an interesting part of the world that connected, you know, activities that we had in Eastern Europe and Africa. Um, But also food security was a rising issue. And again, you know, very early on in, in, in terms of the industry, Um, So we, we put down roots in Dubai and operated from there Um, about four months into Dubai, Dubai collapsed. That was fascinating. Um, It didn't impact us so much because all our businesses were uh, in other regions, but we were operating out of Dubai, but we literally saw overnight, someone turn the lights off and the sort of, you know, you hear the stories about the cars getting abandoned, but that's absolutely what happened. You know, sports cars just sitting out in the streets for months on end until the, you know, the convertible roofs collapsed in and no one would touch them. Um, so uh, yeah, I went, went to Dubai and I ended up um, falling in love and marrying a, an Australian. Um, so who who's from Western Australia. So, you know, fast forward a few years, I was working all over Africa, um, Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, uh, Mozambique, Ghana, Sierra Leone and flying in and out of Dubai. Um, we got married and we decided i needed to put down roots you know have, having been sort of transient in, in my in my youth lived all over the place i kind of felt that you know we we're going to have kids we needed to bring them up in a location that gave them the sense of belonging and um you know you, you, you can't go far wrong with western australia so we Absolutely. arrived in 2013 um and that was a very much a, a move of the heart rather than the head so um you know i kind of felt there was an opportunity to repurpose what skills i had but i arrived here and sort of you know again met a very different market and sort of um had to sort of rebuild networks and everything from scratch to be honest um
0: we've got some common themes here like uh, from starting off doing uh you know being in that expansive space you know in kenya through to uh, your studies at imperial college uh, you know, through into this, uh, again, these businesses all have environmental and social themes running through them. When you arrived in Australia, what was the level of sophistication or advancement in Australia's understanding of this space at that time?
1: Yeah, this is where you get me into trouble because I, I, before an interviews, I've, I've upset a few people, but I guess um, talking from a Western Australia context, you know, we all we're all acutely aware that uh, you know, it's large capital markets and, and sophisticated markets in the US and, and, and London and Europe. Um, coming here to Western Australia, it's sort of everyone's advice to me was get into the mining game, just get into the mining yeah. game. There was no, no real sort of context around what the outside world or other natural resources really looked like, um, and to some extent, you know, the things that we were seeing in terms of development, the types of capital that were getting deployed or projects that were getting developed. Just hadn't hit the foreshores here, even though in a great geographical region, great resources, great water assets, you know, lend themselves to to, to agriculture, um, you know, political security, all the right ticks in the box. I guess the external capital or the cart and horse of what comes first, the projects or the capital, but hadn't quite hit the foreshore yet. And you could see it was on the cusp of that. So I felt like arriving here in Western Australia, very limited network I had to sort of you know it's like um losing the ability to to walk you know you've got to learn all over again and build your network from the ground up but you know just right with opportunities and and you know I found that pretty exciting um and the way I, I've always got myself in trouble it's a bit like being in a time machine. you know what's going to work. you just have to then bring local content to it and you know we're operating five or ten years behind a cycle that you can see another other regions having traveled so if you can translate that and bring the local content together and the capital you know there's a lot of opportunity and even to this day now there's still a lot of opportunity
0: and the lure of mining and you know the money and capital around that space must have been attractive but it was sandalwood is that right that you got into
1: (laughs) yeah so you'll know this from being in in agriculture so you know these are long-term patient assets it's not something that's you know naturally bred into particularly a jurisdiction like this where you know you can raise say four or five million dollars go out with a drill rig and a tenement and you can either go bust or you can become a billionaire i mean it's literally you know that's as immediate as it as it can get so when you talk to to people about you know an agricultural or water development or even more so with sandalwood where you go hang on a minute you invest over a 20-year period Mm -hmm. Um, In a normal agricultural activity, you know, you're buying everything retail and selling everything wholesale. You you might break even after year seven or eight. And by the year 20, you know, you've, you've built up a yielding asset. um, And you've got a phenomenal, uh, you know, underlying real asset that appreciates as a, as a sort of beta, so to speak, but the alpha is pretty lean. If you, if you mismanage it, Um, it turns people off pretty quickly. So um but there is appetite and capital out there and one of the sectors that um has really aligned itself to i'm going to say land and water rather than just pure agriculture plays um has been pension funds particularly overseas Mm. pension funds because you know they've got large amounts of capital they've got to allocate over long periods of time you know if you look at the canadian pension funds they're trying to allocate capital on a 75 year horizon um, if you take a sort of average Australian super fund, they're looking at, you know, maybe a seven to 10 year horizon from an allocation. Um, and then, you know, to, to bring that to contrast with um, maybe a retail investor that's in the ASX, um, looking at mining stocks, some of them only hold a position for for seven days. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's the, so we, we live in this world of sort of immediacy. Um, the sanderwood as an industry and I'm talking about this, a couple of different types of sandwood, but there's a, a native industry here, a native species here in Western Australia mm-hmm. called Santalum spicatum, And, and it, it grows naturally here in the dry land, sort of three, 350 mils of rain. It produces a wood that's worth north of $20,000 a tonne because of the oil and the markets for the oil. And in fact, the settlers here harvested the natural sandwood and exported it off to China and Asia um you know it was the largest on settlement it was what effectively funded all the clearing of land and um and the settlement it was the largest export commodity at that point in time from western australia but fast forward you know century or a couple of hundred years the pension funds really understood this as an asset class that they could deploy capital to yeah Um, it was totally uncorrelated it took you know 15 to 25 years to mature um, but it sort of worked from their portfolio effect. So I ended up in the sandwood industry um, with a local asset manager that had funds from North America, um, you know, pension funds that, you know, such as the union of auto workers um, and government of, uh, of Singapore, GIC, quietly um, operating dry land uh, assets where we, we repurposed uh, non-productive agricultural land into reforestation dryland forestry model that created a return you know of mid-teens
0: yeah Um, mate what i'd love to unpack this is all seems to be uh in hindsight a natural transition or a natural pathway into what you're doing now with esg and f can you just go through and uh, give us a breakdown of what is esg uh, I'll come back to the plus F bit and why that's important later. But where did this term even where this term even come from? Has it been around for a long time, short time? Because it's definitely in the press all the time now.
1: So it's all the time, and it's become a terminology that's gathered momentum um, of its own within the last three to four years. Mm-hmm. Um, be- before that, if you look back, you know, particularly in my days in Africa, some of the previous terms, even corporate social responsibility or impact, hadn't been coined then. It was just good business in those days and and things that we needed to do within the business. But ESG is sort of evolved as a terminology. Um, You know, it's really, really important to get a clear definition of what ESG is because it means, uh, as a terminology that's been rapidly adopted and evolved, it means a myriad of things to to different people. And, you know, that opens up to, um, you know, I I, I guess... um, you know, high conviction people that really behind ESG that are trying to align the terminology to, to their agenda, to, you know, people that are anti ESG, you know, causes a reaction. Oh, we, you know, we live in a very woke society and this is just a Mm. another bloody thing that we've got to do. Um, But actually, you know, and I've sat in this for a while and really challenged myself to clearly define what ESG is. And, and to me and to, to our business, ESG isn't a thing. This, you know, People that have a strong reaction to it are treating it as a thing because they've applied their filter and things that they think are important or not important to them and caused a reaction from it. But ESG is actually a scientific process of measuring non-financial attributes that impact a business and the stakeholders that sit around that business. So there's the two axes of it. It's not trying to be good, bad, or different, is trying to acknowledge that there are certain factors going on around your business. Some of them can be categorized as environmental, some of them social. And, you know, governance covers a a broad array, but there's a lot of other that sits in there. And these can have impacts on businesses. They can have um, detrimental impacts and they can um, be a key that can be a step change for a business and unlock a lot of opportunity. So ESG just sort of bringing that back it's a set of similar to a set of financial accounts, it's a set of non-financial accounts that measure um these attributes or factors around a business that can have a, a you know significant impact.
0: One of the things um as I listen to this, uh you mentioned something around almost let's just say a religious fervor around people who either do or do not believe in climate change. Um then you've also got, you know doing the right thing because it's the right thing versus doing something because it's woke i feel that you've got a rather agnostic approach on you know taking the sensitivities or the the polarity of the esg debate and bringing it back to data and bringing it back to good business yeah
1: i I experienced this firsthand i was sitting there as an md of an ASX company developing the largest private water asset here in Western Australia, down in the Pemberton region. I was sitting in the boardroom. And to me, you know, I'd experienced some of these uh, non-financial factors on businesses in the past. And we can, we can come back to that and talk about those Mm. as examples. But I was talking to the board about, um, you know, whether the physical things that we were doing around the asset. And then I started talking about ESG and I was very enthusiastic because of my experience and what I could see, but my underlying driver there was, that we're going to ultimately want to sell this asset. And the best buyer would be the buyer that has the lowest cost of capital, which would be something like a Canadian pension fund. And with their outlook of 75 years, they're going to want to know all these non-financial factors, all these ESG factors, because that's part of their due diligence on selecting assets. So I started to talk about ESG, but I was still treating it as very much like a thing. So it was still a, you know, an umbrella term. I hadn't had enough time or resources of business to clearly define it or how we were going to measure it. And Pete, I just got shot down in that by the chairman of the board straight away. I I couldn't, couldn't finish my sentence. Um, He turned around to me and said, look, um, the the honest truth here, Ollie, is that um, this is just philanthropy and I don't need management of this business telling me how to donate my money. If I want to donate it to the WWF, um, and I certainly don't think your shareholders would appreciate it either. And that was pretty, pretty jarring. It kind of made me cause a bit of a reaction. To, <laughs>
0: How many um, years ago was this? I'm so just trying this to was, get. Um,
1: 2021. This occurred.
0: Not long ago. Not, so long, not ago. long
1: ago. And this is a, uh, a, highly, I won't name him, but he's a highly experienced chairman that's run mm. large organizations. Um, but very much of the old school. Um, yeah. and, like, he, and he wasn't wrong. That's the thing I, I you know, I got pretty frustrated. I actually ended up leaving the business shortly after that. Um, We clearly were not aligned or on the same page. Um, And it was that battle of immediacy versus um, long-term value creation. Um, Mm. But one of the things I did uh, post leaving that business is I did a lot of running (laughs) and I sat on this, kept coming back to the, you know, what was going on there. And And I came to the realization that actually it wasn't, it wasn't his fault. Um, It was mine because I hadn't understood how to quantify ESG. I was still talking about it as a thing, something we need, but I don't know what we need. Um, And, you know, I had that sort of realisation moment, which was, okay, if if I'm sitting there and I've had experiences where what we now define as attributes around ESG have been, in my opinion, been step changes for previous businesses, but I'm struggling to convey this, to board, to shareholders, and effectively the decision makers that will enable some of these, um, you know, some of these attributes to be, uh, you know, brought into the lens of the, the company and, and potentially further improved or unlocked for opportunity. If I'm struggling to this, how many other senior yeah. executives or MDs are having this conversation or shying away from it because effectively they don't want conflict at a board level? And so I, that I guess that sort of sparked something in me. And, um, I went and sat in that problem and I socialised it and I actually socialised it with um, a good friend of mine that's now the chairman of our business, ESG Plus F, so uh, Dave Trimbley. Dave, you know, comes from a very much a capital and commodities background. He's the ex-head of coal at Glencore. He was part of the executive team that built and listed Glencore in the heyday. And, you know, very successful businessman in his own right. Um, we had this, you know, debate and conversation, but ultimately we both agreed that, we need to go and understand how ESG is going to impact any of our investments or businesses that we have. And, you know, and the second part is then how do we both as an internal and external dynamic to an organization, how do we use that to drive value? Because we know there's certain embedded things that maybe not may not be getting attention that done properly can be absolute step changes, can completely transform businesses. Um, so we sort of sat in those two Um, paradigms. And then I spent the next month talking to anyone within my network and Rolodex from my time of of dealing with the US and the UK capital markets, particularly sort of um, investment funds and saying, you know, guys, are you you thinking about ESG? What are you doing? And that that got me through to the analysts and the analysts are saying, yeah, you know, this is what we're doing. We've we've now set up a bunch of indicators that um, flag the issues that we really care about for our portfolio um, and we're starting to analyze that. And, and that kind of was the first light bulb moment to say, well, there's actually really a, a clear pathway here to go about quantifying ESG. And if you can measure it, then you can communicate it and you can work on how to improve certain areas. And that, that, that's ultimately what gave birth to and, and the you know, formation of ESG plus F. The, the ESG bit's important. A lot of people talk about it, but you've got to be able to unlock the financial value or value that can be attributed to companies through it, because that's what's ultimately going to be perpetual within esg and and continue to keep the momentum going forward.
0: Access to capital um, and being having that layer of data that puts your company forward as an attractor of capital. How far through, I guess the innovation cycle and by the innovation cycle, I mean, our innovators who jump onto it first and we've got early adopters and then the majority comes in and then ultimately the laggards you know uh get into the process sooner or later where are we from being early adopters versus business as normal uh, when acquiring capital using ESG as a definitive factor in your business
1: yeah so acquiring capital is something that you tune your ESG to align to that strategic objective if that's your strategic objective. So that, mm. that alignment to capital, we, we both talk about access to capital and cost of capital, two very important um, outcomes that ESG can certainly have an influence over and increasingly is, is having an influence over. Um, you know, dialing that back, uh, what I would say about you know, ESG as, a, as an industry and where we've landed, the discoverable universe of all the non-financial indicators have been discovered. I I, I really, truly believe that, you know, we know, and and there's, you know, there's not a lot more pioneering to be done around what should be measured around businesses or the, all the non-financial set of accounts. Um, But what we've ended up with is um, different frameworks and standards across a broad spectrum that can be to satisfy stakeholders, climate agendas, regulators, capital markets, um, even down to uh, quantifying risk within organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you take that and, and, and what we did with the business quite early, is we didn't want to have a particular bias going to a client and say, well, do this framework and it fixes everything. Because it, it really yeah. doesn't. It's a it's a it's a very complex landscape of um, lots of questions, lots of indicators. Um, or lots of statements that are saying things but slightly different. Um, so we knew from a data point of view before you go chasing the rainbows, the outcomes, whether that be you know brand reputation, market access or or capital as we're talking about now, um, you need to understand and quantify what are the indicators that matter to you as a business and to your stakeholders and, and align to those strategic priorities, where you're going to effectively put the efforts and <laughs> To that end, um, start the measurement, know what you're going to collect, and then fine-tune it as as you move through that journey. Um, So accessing capital is a big driver for a lot of companies to to start getting on this journey. Um, You've got what they call material topics. So if you look at your organisation and you look at some of these um, indicators, they can be categorised into, let's call them buckets. But categories and you typically the first thing you need to do is say which are the ones that are material to me as an organization uh, and to the um, target stakeholders which you know capital markets could be one of your target stakeholders and so it's a logical one of your stakeholders um, through that it sort of then becomes irrelevant it becomes relevant as to what what really matters and what you need to measure what you need to disclose and show that you you know are aware of as a business um, as you move along that Then the next thing that kicks in is maturity. So uh, once I can measure something, what do I look like versus the rest of my sector or my geographical region that I'm operating in? What's my point of difference that could influence capital? So you're aligning your values and your maturity to maybe a capital provider that also considers those um, um, uh, values, uh, attributes um, as Mm. important. And that's really gets you through that first leg of unlocking capital, then the conversation is, and it's always the same, um, but ESG practices the same format, which is competition for capital. Is there more than one provider? Is there multiple? Because by creating competition, you're going to drive down the cost of capital in this. Um, so that's an example of sort of how, how it would play out.
0: What's interesting to me now is like, just even at a little um, tactical level, is I've got a, a humble share portfolio. And when I click on my app, which is just through my, um, you know, on my phone, have a look at the value of my shares, that actually comes on my phone an ESG risk rating for only about a third of the companies uh, on the market at the moment. But those risk ratings range from negligible, um, you know, through to severe. There's different scores for both the environmental, social, and governance part of it. And it also links controversy and events. Coming into this reporting piece, which is really the essence of ESG plus F, I believe. Tell us about what it actually means to report and what it looks like to report on your ESG performance. Excuse me.
1: Yeah, reporting is um, is a is a way of disclosure. So it's it's how you um, can then communicate to the shareholders, um, the stakeholders that sit in the market. Um, this is what we're measuring and this is what we look like. And it gives you a reference point for comparison, for benchmarking, for scoring and scorecards, such as what you're seeing there, um, it it causes, uh, I I guess if you're operating, particularly in the listed market as an ASX market, you can't talk about these things unless you, you have some sort of form of continuous disclosure. So reporting is one mechanism that enables, um, companies to communicate, um, That they have done the work and they have measured and this is what they they look like um and it also allows them to communicate on where they think improvements will happen Mm. where that then gets interpreted is that's everything you're saying about yourself so typically in in a market force there needs to be a dynamic where um there's an opinion um that that's provided around that that's independent and that's where rating agencies really come through so they'll They'll come through and they will give their opinion on an industry, a sector, a market cap around a stock and say, you know, these are uh, what what a bunch of peers would look like. And these are what we consider important to the business. And that's where your ratings will come out of. Obviously those that are unrated are either um, uh, either haven't got sufficient disclosures or haven't understood yep. how to disclose. And there's a lot of misinterpretation between, you know, nice shiny picture reports and actually the information that um, these rating agencies scrape to then effectively run through their own proprietary models to come up with a, a number or a traffic-like type you know, health system. Um, but the importance there, and, and particularly from a so- sort of sophisticated investors, they found, and there's a great paper by Macquarie Bank on this, but they found that um, ESG performance through rating instruments directly correlates to risk. Mm. So business, and you talk about risk, but it's about business continuity or things that are going to disrupt a business. So we know capital markets and the influence risk has around pricing or premiums or, or multiples that companies will get. Um, and that's what we're starting to see play out here. And that's what I think that might be a sustainalytics type of opinion piece that's sitting there um, that's driven that data. But they've done some analysis around those companies. The risk is if you're if you if you haven't started the journey on disclosure. Um, there are parties that will expect particularly on a risk basis to have some sort of uh lens over the organization and if they can't quantify risk, you're just naturally not going to get selected in portfolios um yeah nat- naturally you know as a retail investor you're starting to give some consideration to that but probably not yet fully appreciating what it means um but certainly as you move into asset managers, investment managers and sort of sophisticated capital, they really are um Uh, I guess, data hungry and and really understanding what their portfolio exposure um, is and how that risk plays out.
0: So anytime we have a scoreboard, anytime we have advantage because of the data or the way that we present our information, there's an assumption that some people will do the wrong thing. I see a lot of press around different forms of washing in the ESG space and people putting on that veil or the veneer of, um, you know, having... You know, done the work without actually doing it. Do you see much of that happening?
1: Absolutely. That that, that was a precursor to the last three years. So, mm-hmm. organisations got a little bit excited about ESG, and then um, I guess by association, they made big uh, motherhood statements without fully understanding what they meant or the implications for them, because they thought that gave them a competitive edge, and that's fallen into the category of what they call greenwashing. the The onset of um, we know what we're measuring from a set of non-financials now, um, and how to benchmark that and how to uh, analyze that has uh, allowed the regulators to effectively start to clean that up. And here in Australia, ASIC have been very, very um, active, particularly around companies that have made long forward-looking statements around, you know, um, net zero by X amount of day, you know, twenty forty or twenty fifty. If those organisations haven't done sufficient disclosures to justify why they're making that statement. It's a bit like going out and saying, you know, we're going to make a billion dollars profit, but you know, we haven't built the thing yet. You you know, you have to have firm um, grounds to effectively make a forward looking statement that leads investors to that direction. So we're we're certainly seeing regulators get active. That's another reason why data is very important because data and then disclosure go together. The data from an internal point of view allows an informed board to make a decision on what it discloses and what it says as an organization, and then it can support that. Um, and, and that's, you know, that that's exactly where we're at today, what we're finding. And, and we, we work with, you know, a, a range of companies, um, particularly in the ASX market because disclosure is an important factor there. Uh, we're working you know, with, with companies that are, um, $20 million type market caps all the way through to a billion dollars. They all have the same issue, which is um, collection of data, man- management of that data, basically turning un- unstructured data into a disclosure format and being able to manage their data through a single source of truth. So that that's become a very important area of our business and practice um, today. And we found pathways to really sort of um, turn quite a complex um, set of information into quite simple disclosures that drive their performance with rating agencies, provides the information to regulators that they need, um, and I guess mitigates a lot of that risk around greenwashing or, or getting caught up in a, a please explain from, from ASIC.
0: It reminds me of uh, a few years ago, and I don't know the detail of it uh, in, its, uh, in depth, but the Volkswagen emissions data scandal, like what was the driver behind Volkswagen excuse me, to put on that impression of being, you know, a green business where in reality it was that that veneer put over it and ultimately I believe some kind of fraud uh, in releasing the data. Um, You currently work with, you know, bigger businesses, um, but I'm interested in do the principles of ESG apply at the lower level? For me, uh, when I listen to your talk, it reminds me of the saying, when is the best time to plant a tree? Like it's either 20 years ago or today. Um, so, you know, if we, if we apply some of these principles into our business when we're smaller, are we going to reap some of these wa- rewards later on in terms of best practice? You now, where's that tier of, of actual application of VSG principles in business?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it applies to all businesses. It doesn't matter on, on size or scale. The, obviously, the limitation is how much energy and resource and, and cost attached to the effort. And that is proportionate. Um, so any, any small business can really start and get the, the basic principles in place. And then as the business grows, it can build more momentum um, to that. The, the value for a small business will actually, will give it a lot more business insight because small businesses, maybe not everyday trading in the market or capital or, or dealing with um, supply chain type, um, big issues that large corporates are doing. But what it does do is it actually shines a light on a number of areas of the business that, a small business may not be aware of um, internally where there's opportunity for business process improvement. Mm. Um, So we we see that as a really sort of um, low-hanging fruit in the early part of the journey. Um, What we've done is we've broken this down, this whole journey and and process to to, to effectively um, states or stages that a, a company would go through. First stage is Pathfinder, and that's all the foundational pieces. And that's universal. It doesn't matter um, whether you're a um, small um, retail um, convenience store all the way through to a you know a large multi-billion dollar mining company in the critical mineral sector. Um, Through that process, you put put a a, an understanding and interpretation of your ESG. What are your material topics? And then start to set some, you know, some some achievable near-term goals to, to where you think that that improvement, um, um, leads to the benefit of the business. And it doesn't always have to be what I would call, um, a for-purpose type action, you know, uh, a not-for-profit type, what you would see behavior from a not-for-profit can be something like, um, you know, we're a small business. Um, we know that we currently buy electricity off the grid. It, It makes total sense to put renewable panels on top of our, um, you know, a factory or office, Um, you know, it's going to, you know, have a return on investment around five to to seven years. There's strong subsidies for doing it. We know where our power costs are going to be, you know, so we've hedged inflation around electricity um, and and power, and we've ended up actually reducing our emissions footprint. Um, You know, that's a sort of real win-win area that's that's pretty logical for anyone, particularly small businesses. Um, So... Um, you know that's a, that's a good example. Naturally, you go from Pathfinder laying the foundations to what we call performance, and that's where, as you build your instrument, you get a lot more strategic with it. Um, and the more value you can derive from it, the more justification there's for further investment. So, we have a diagram. We talk a lot to clients about the flywheel, but the flywheel is effectively, you know, don't try and boil the ocean. Identify the hot spots and things that are meaningful to your business and the resource that you've got um to at your disposal close those hot spots re-measure where you sit um in, in implement the improvements and then do a further gap analysis to identify hotspots for the future and, and you, it, the more you turn that wheel obviously the more mature and the more advanced you get on the esg um, but it's proportionate to either capital time or events that happen with the business yeah um,
0: I keep coming back to this thing in my head. I just keep listening to doing the right thing versus doing the right thing for business. And they don't necessarily have to be uh, contradicting. Uh, And this, I guess what the data actually brings out is that you can measure your performance. You can measure the, the plus F bit. And actually while we're there, can we, we, can we talk about the plus F bit and why you've added the plus F to ESG in your business?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, When we went out and we looked at this market, we looked at all the providers as well. And, typical reaction we got was we were finding um esg the earlier movers were more sustainability type um, practices and in esg certainly sustainability overlaps with esg but they're not the same thing we want to be really clear about that it's just one subset of that but we found um, those consultants they will write a report um, but they won't actually get to the so what of the business what does this really mean and how can we be very practical about it um and uh you know they were high conviction. this is not a criticism but they're just naturally in that industry because they're high conviction you know we're, we're here because we're you know fist pumps we're here to save the planet and their biases that they were implementing on businesses was their lens on the world and they were trying to encourage businesses through that and we felt that Yes, you know, whilst some of these factors are impacting businesses and are important, it's for the businesses to make those decisions, not our biases or experience to then guide those businesses. That you know, what I call the tail wagging the dog. Um, so really, we we felt that um, the current providers weren't really linking all the way through. They weren't understanding the 70% of the room that doesn't yet have the confidence around ESG or can dismiss it easily because of some of these attributes, um, and you needed to continue to operate ESG as a business unit that drives towards your, your strategic corporate objectives. It contributes to that. And, but is part of the whole organization. So the plus F is simply literally, you know, if we can unlock value and we can drive continuous sustainable uh, long-term growth, not sustainability, but sustainable growth, which is what everyone wants to see from their business, then you're unlocking value. And that's what the, the plus F is. So let's not forget of the key drivers that that sits in every business um to enable this to happen
0: is this a way that we have we're having our cake and eating it too like when we want to do the right thing for the right thing's sake you know the the philanthropy the social good the environmental with um, combining financial outcomes for business
1: i think the obligation is to effectively continue to evolve um, businesses for growth Mm. and mitigate uh or continue business continuity We, we call risk but business continuity, right? Want the business to survive. Um, and this this really shines a light on a number of things that could come along and topple businesses. Um, yeah. And how do you plan for that? Because they're not immediate things. They're not bottom line. I, I cut this cost, therefore I've immediately bumped up profits. It looks slightly um, over the horizon to plan for businesses and, and to see things that could come along and absolutely topple you um, over. And I think that's one of the biggest... Um, most powerful things that esg uh, can do for any company and I, and I want to say any you know we're seeing coal companies adopting esg principles you know what what, what, what places coal got to do in the market of esg well it's got a lot um, to do and obviously there are very different types of coal operators and different markets for coal um, but they're interested in you know how do they um, build some resilience to these businesses or how do they transition their business models forward and all of ESG allows them to effectively quantify that and measure it and, and bring those boardroom discussions into um, rather than things that we should be talking about and differences of opinion, but that's something organisations can get aligned um, against. Now, what you're talking about in terms of can we do something for good? Absolutely. And there's plenty of companies out there um, that can can marry those two models and they move up the maturity curve and they strategically do it in a way that. Um, you know, I think it's um, a great example, the toilet paper company who gives a crap. Yeah. You know, that's such a, a mundane, vanilla industry. How do you go about disrupting that? Well, they, they changed the purpose um, and they educated an audience, um, but they did it in a profitable way. Um, so that's, a, that's an, an absolute example of um, strategically unlocking value through the lens of, of looking at some of these attributes and, and, and changing market access and and consumer behavior around that. Um,
0: It seems to be a lot about choices, you know, um, ESG procurement, for example, like there's lots of things we can do in our business. We can create policy change. We can create action change. Um, Can you share a bit about, excuse me, ESG procurement and how we can use this as a simple factor in our choices in business? Yes, supply
1: chain is becoming more important. So if you you think about procurement, you're thinking about supply chain upstream and downstream. and the frameworks that, that exist out there have a large portion dedicated to to supply chain. It could be things like um, um, collective bargaining type arrangements, or or you know um, modern slavery type issues that yep. that could sit in the supply chain, embedded emissions um, that sit in the supply chain. Um, if you think about the amount of things that we buy and the components that are made up, it, it's it's complex. But we live in a world where everything's digitalized. There's a lot of um, Traceability and there's a lot of technology that can be used to bring that together. Um, so, ESG has certainly um, changed the language around buying something for the cheapest cost possible to what is the impact of that thing on our reputation as an organization, or what is the impact that doesn't align to our values, i.e., let's um, now start communicating with the supply chain about how do we clean this up, or what are the different options that we can um, move along. So, that that is a whole area what i call of subject matter experts
0: yeah
1: the 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 important piece for us and where data then feeds in there'll be a lot of activities as as a business operation that that work within the supply chain the esg will measure how active what you're doing what targets that sit around that um cascade it all into sort of uh, an approach and what we do is we prep um for the discussion that um, well, that organizations will have around these topics. So hey, if you imagine a boardroom and a chairman, he's got three minutes. He wants to know where do we sit, where are we moving, what are our targets, how are we how are we tracking? Um, is there an area that I want to go and do a deep dive? Sure, but you've got to be able to have that conversation in three minutes. Um, you then move to the next level, which is probably leadership and executive leadership team. You know, they're half an hour, hour-long conversations. And then you move into the... You know, heads of departments and those business units um, within the organisation, where they they'll be having days conversations, but they say three, four hours, and supply chain would be one of those conversations that they unpack. Um, one of the things that we've done with our business, and it was really important to us at ESG Plus F, um, having sort of sat in boardrooms, and I I, I sit on I'm a non-exec director of a, of a listed company as well, so I understand the dynamics and how they change in the roles and responsibilities in the organisation, but we have to um, bring information and effectively address the resource time and the outcomes for that in a very concise way. And ESG now, um, using the taxonomy that we follow, which is a, a global taxonomy, is part of the Sustainability um, Accounting Standards Board SASB. Where we're able to visualize and give board oversight on one page. That enables those kind of conversations. And then we can you know, pick through the haystack and find the needles or the inadequacies typically within the organization and its data, but also when you then overlay what information you have within your organization versus a peer or a competitor or an aspirational peer, it becomes really apparent as to where the gaps are and what yeah. needs to be addressed. So if it's something that's immediate and it's material to an organization, that's when you're starting to have conversations around, we should set a budget and resource about improving this. And then because you've already measured it, you've got a baseline and you can start to, to, to see how you, you know, Mm. your trajectory along that line of improvement.
0: So look, ESG isn't going anywhere. ESG is here to stay. Um, I I would
1: argue ESG has always been here. Mm. The science of being able to measure it has just got rapidly sophisticated. Um, To an organisation where they can actually use it as as an instrument. Um, But you know if you cast your your mind back and I'll I'll cast myself back to um, my father who was involved in an ex-Unilever business on behalf of the British government, the the, um, CDC, the Commonwealth Development Corporation, and they acquired a horticultural property with three and a half thousand staff um, about 110 hectares of greenhouses. It exported about a million stems of, of roses, flowers per day um, off that farm. We didn't have any of these metrics or measurements in there, but we did have some fundamental pieces that we knew that were our responsibilities. We, we housed a community that we, we housed on the property of about 15,000, two schools, a hospital. We even had a morgue for a farm um, to be able to operate as a community. And we started to measure a very controversial subject and this is sort of the late um nine in 1990s, this is sort of 97, 98, uh HIV within the community mm-hmm. and starting to elevate that conversation. You know, and that was a a subject where no one really wanted to talk about it. It just happened and people came and went, but we knew um that a high percentage of our organization would be HIV positive. Um, and how do we stop that trend going further? Um, and one of the the most powerful, and you would say now today this is an, an ESG attribute, but one of the most powerful things that we did with that business that that enacted an impact um, was creating employment generation uh, employment opportunities for females. So we would call you know gender diversity or gender equality. Now we found that you know from a practical point of view. Um, um, uh, females harvesting flowers caused less damage so we got higher packout rates which influenced the profit line of the business um but also we empowered and we um, channeled a certain portion basically of of um uh, income into that community that was through salaries to to women and unlike the men to, to, to be really frank men would you know get their paycheck go down to the pub um, do a whole bunch of things probably um, be a bit incestuous which would you know Exacerbate the issue, whereas women actually saved that money, empowering them, enabling them to have bank accounts. What did they do with the money? They typically started small businesses. They um, educated their children, and they certainly didn't go out drinking. Um, Mm. And we just saw the biggest impact that we had on HIV rates um, from what we measured um, within the business of what we're allowed to measure. You know, it it just rapidly dropped through that empowerment function. So it's a real win-win for the business. So that that's a classic um, value creation from effectively what we now know as ESG. But then we just didn't have the language.
0: My um, grandmother grew up in Bourneville in Birmingham. And from what I know, that was a Cadbury factory. Her parents uh, Mm -hmm. were given a house on on this little estate at Cadbury, like, uh, and they literally lived there. All the workers lived there. Again, I've I've never been there, but I I believe, you know, this is some of the hundred, probably hundred years ago, that people are actually doing the right thing and the right thing is actually great for business. Oli, um, I'd like to tell, tell us a little bit of ESG Plus F, your business. Who are the people that need to call you? Um, who are the people you work best with? Uh, and I'll put in all the show notes about how we can follow you and follow the information that you're sharing. But who out there right now should contact ESG Plus F?
1: Yeah, we, we launched the business late in 2021 on this, on this sort of mission that we had, um, which was effectively turn that, complexity into simple, actionable insights for yeah. organizations. Um, we work with companies that are looking to dedicate resource to this, and we provide effectively an in-house resource. So think of it like, um, you know, your IT function within any company now, you typically would outsource that, but they're an, an essential thing for the organization. We uh, specialize in data um, and turning basic ESG into insights, but within the organizations, what does that mean? We we actually just deploy our team. We can do it remotely or in-house. Um, we have a technology stack, um, a whole bunch of that technology is proprietary to us, but we also use third-party technology um, that enable us to drive efficiency and outcomes. And we go to work across a very clear roadmap for those companies to do all the mundane things. You know, it's, it's, it's very hard to take your lead person on ESG or sustainability and organization and tell them to spend days on end crunching data, it doesn't naturally fit. So we sit there as a support role in those organizations. The way that we set up the business, and I feel very strongly about this, is is to be agile. So we um, use a a credit-based system. Um, You effectively uh, allocate a resource and we consume it against what your objectives are. And we can give strategic uh, advice and insight um, through the Pathfinder foundations as to how to best spend that money. And then you can do the work yourselves, or you can deploy our expertise and our experts to be able to do that work for you. What we're finding, and it doesn't matter, you know, a company can start with as little as five thousand dollars with us, um, and start that journey. Um, but we do have clients that spend um, hundreds of thousands of dollars with us that are, you know, half a billion, a billion dollar um, company, um, market cap companies. Um, that is just this continuous role of taking internal information. It's amazing how much information actually sits in an organization mm. that's just embedded in there and, and not necessarily brought to the surface. Mm. So we have a really good understanding of getting insights and understanding and un- unblocking the plumbing to allow that information to flow, to first and foremost internally understand where you stand before you then go off communicating. So we call disclosures an external piece. But first and foremost, we, we get the internal insight right. Um, Naturally, you know what we're finding, particularly here based in Western Australia, but we operate across all of Australia and we've got new team members that just joined in, in um, Melbourne, Sydney, and Queensland. Um, what we're typically finding is ASX companies are, are starting to um, go through or they might have done an educational stage where they've employed a consultant. They may have done a materiality assessment. They may have done a first sustainability report, but then they've hit the wall. They haven't got to the point of answering the so what or getting very strategic about about ESG as an instrument, and that's where we naturally, you know, sit and, and, and plug in. Um, clients can, you know, turn us on and off at any time, but typically we're saving our clients around thirty percent compared to the cost of, you know, hiring and retaining people in house, the training that would need to go um, to doing the work that typically we do. And then the technology stack that you've then got to subscribe to. So all of that's embedded in a, in a consumption model that's really easy for, for companies to start and then allow them to expand. Um, our, every client gets a relationship manager and the relationship manager just, you know, works as the sort of advocate within the organization to help them calibrate this instrument and constantly refine the, the roadmap. So that's what we are. Um, you can find, you know, and book a very simple uh, meeting with us, a, a discovery meeting um, through our website, um, www.esg-f.com. Um, and also I'd encourage anyone that's looking to to, to try and understand ESG, and we and we haven't really sort of unpacked another whole big area, but that's climate and climate disclosure. Um, we have two readiness assessments, so two self-assessments that organisations can effectively do that will give them some understanding and insight as to where they stand today and possible recommendations for improvements before they sort of engage and decide on, on a, a provider that can support them.
0: Is that a self-managed tool that they can get off you and basically self-assess, yeah. do a first step? Yeah.
1: Correct. Yeah. I mean, you're hearing it here first, it's actually going to be live on our website from tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you log on our website um, and you look through uh, readiness assessment... Um, you'll find those, those self-serving tools, so.
0: Perfect, uh, we'll uh, we'll throw that in the show notes and I'll share that. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, just go down bottom and click the button and, and have a look at it. Um, mate, I'm gonna wrap up with a couple of my thoughts. So my first one is just your your point on ESG is not a new thing, it's been here forever. And there, going back to my plant a tree analogy, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago the second best time is today. So infusing ESG into your to your mindset into your consciousness about the way we do business. Uh, The sooner you do it, the better, because it is here, the amount of regulation and the way that you position yourself against your competitors as being a partner of choice, a you know, of a business of choice is really going to be defined on how you present yourself to the world. But we need data. To show the reality of how that works and, and it's businesses like esg plus f that actually help you actually define that data um, it's not about being woke it's not about having your religious fever to you know drive your agenda it's about risk and continuity and performance and it's about doing good things to drive good businesses that are going to be enduring and sustainable um, Ollie, can I hand over for you for a final thought um, on where ESG is going in the future and just your thoughts on the industry?
1: Yeah, I think my, my, my parting tip and consideration to anyone that's either already practicing ESG or, or starting on that journey is um, the data allows measurement and measurement allows mm-hmm. to, to eliminate the bias from the room. And we, we've walked into a number of organizations where they've attempted to do something. They've given um, the role to someone that's most passionate about it. But then you yeah, know not, not int- intentionally but they've alienated the entire uh, organization because the organization's really trying to focus on critical elements and not understanding where the ESG is coming from so enabling that measurement allows actually to everybody to get aligned behind the mission um yeah. that's there and, and what what really matters and I think that's one of the most powerful things beyond the obvious things that people want from ESG which is you know re- you know reducing costs and overhead and identifying opportunities like the Renewables, um, example, I gave um, access to capital, um, reputation, and risk. Um, so that's really where, um, you know, where it sits today. Um, there's no, you know, no, no, um, there's no sort of start and end point to this. It's just mm. part of the DNA of an organisation. So it's just so exciting when you can start to see that um, dashboarded or visualised and you can bring other people on the journey.
0: Well, thanks for sharing your time with us today. I feel like I've really leveled up today in terms of my business acumen, and obviously, with your experience, you know, you know, leading companies and working with some of Australia's, you know, forefront in, you know, big, big, big businesses. For me, as a humble small business guy, it's been really fascinating for me to to think about how I can deliberately apply some of these practice and principles in what I do on a day to day basis. So, um, Ollie, thanks for joining us today on the Military Mindset for Business podcast. All of those notes are going to be down below. Jump on and click. Uh, don't forget to share, like, and do all that kind of stuff. And jump onto the Ollie's website and pick up that downloadable guide. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how you're doing in your business and then getting back in touch with them to see what you can do about it. Um, Ollie, thanks very much for your time today. Well, done, Pete, no, thanks very much. Really appreciate your time. No, pleasure. pleasure. Um, so this is the end of Military Mindset for Business podcast for today. My name's Pete Liston, out. Oh. Oh you